I love that energy and the feeling of that energy of friendliness in the room. It's, uh, it's really uh, a very important element of our practice that we meet experience as well as each other with a measure of friendliness. So the sound of friendliness is feels very warm and welcoming to me, so I'm glad you had an opportunity to do that. So we'll start with um, meditation. So just take a couple of deep breaths, and if you would even like, we've been in the city all day and been working and dealing with people and dealing with issues, so if you'd like to, on the out-breath, give a really big sigh, that would be great too. One more. And as you feel the relaxation of that out-breath, allow it to permeate your whole body so that there is a relaxation and an ease that comes in knowing our ability to breathe out. And as we breathe in, to notice that the word inspire is the same as in breath, same root. So interesting to note the the roots of inspiration, which is the in breath, and the ability to become transported, inspired. You feel the body at ease to the extent that it's possible. Perhaps there's some tightness in the body. Perhaps there's something we're holding on to. Or just the tightness of that happens because we're living beings. Just notice where the body is tight, where it's holding, where it's tense. So let the attention just go through from the top of the head, down through the head and the neck, the shoulders, etc., slowly feeling the places of tightness and tension, and seeing if you can release that to some extent. It may not be possible to release it completely, but if you find the muscles of the face tight, allowing them to relax to the best of your ability. If you find the shoulders tight, letting them go. If they're hiked up to the ears, seeing if you can drop them from the shoulder blades, from the back of the angel wings, bringing the shoulders down, releasing the throat. So just notice 
from the top of the head down to the shoulders and the whole facial muscle system. So are the eyes tight? Are you closing them so tightly that there's tension there? How about the cheeks and the lips and the jaw? How is the scalp around the cranium? Can you release that? And then traveling down into the neck and the throat area, letting those relax and tilting the chin slightly with the top of the head pointed to the heavens so that the back of the neck can release. The back of the neck is lengthened. And then allowing the arms to get heavy so that they're relaxed. And you can have the hands, palms down on the knees or palms up, one on top of the other with the thumbs touching. Let the chest open so the heart is somewhat open. Allow the spine to be erect without being tense or tight or overstretched. So that there's a dignity in your posture, but it's not so overemphasized that it becomes tense or tight. And then notice the hip and groin area and the belly and allow them to release. Allow the belly to fill completely on the in-breath and to empty completely on the out-breath, at least for now. If you're sitting on a cushion, check to make sure that you have a triangular base that's stable. If you're sitting on a chair, allow the feet to be parallel in front of you, flat on the floor. See if you can take your shoulders off the back of the chair. so that you allow the energy of the body to course freely through it. If there's anywhere in the body that I have not mentioned, that feels tight or tense to you. Please pay attention and do what you can to allow whatever degree of release is possible. And when you feel settled in your physical posture, 
Allow the breath to be natural, unmanipulated and uncontrolled. Simply doing what it does, has been doing for all of your life without your help. If it's short, just notice that it's short. If it's shallow, just notice that it's shallow. If it's rough, just notice that. Or long, or smooth, or deep. attention now come to uh, noticing the moods of the mind. Just what have you brought with you? Sadness, joy, depression, elation, evenness, balance, equanimity, kindness, compassion, cruelty, hatred, love. Whatever the mind is colored by, notice it. And do so without grasping at what you consider to be worthy moves or pushing away what you consider to be difficult or challenging or unacceptable moves. Just allowing an attention to what is here. Notice if the general mood is pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Again, with a spirit of gentleness and kindness, with an allowing, become interested in what is here without needing to manipulate or control to make anything happen. Kind of friendly interest. As you begin to feel settled in your body, settled in the mind, and settled in the heart, allow the attention to come back to the movement of the breath in the body. Allowing this breath 
call the attention gently and allow a noticing of this movement of breath in the body in as precise a way as is possible. so that there is an awareness when the breath, when there is an in-breath and the attention is married to this movement of breath from its beginning through its middle and to its end until there is a pause and the breath turns itself around into an out-breath Noticing the outbreath with the same precision, kindness, and gentleness. Let the attention rest there. Just with this simple in-breath and the simple out-breath and the simple pause in between, really paying attention at the pause, which is the, the moment, the, the change from the in-breath, from the out-breath to the in-breath, where the mind has the tendency to fly off. Perhaps right at that moment, just paying attention to the feeling of the contact between the butt and the the seat. And then noticing when the in-breath begins again. As happens in life, from time to time, a sound will appear, a sensation in the body might appear, a thought in the mind, or an emotion may arise. It's fine to allow that to come and go just as it will, allowing it to be in the background. However, if any of these, the sound, the sensation, the thought, or the emotion, 
arises and pulls the attention, becomes predominant in your field of awareness, it's fine to let go of the breath and become interested in what's here, not in an analytical or cognitive way, but simply receiving that sound or sensation or thought or feeling in the same way that we receive the breath with some interest, with some allowing, and the recognition, oh, this is here now, this is thinking, or this is uh, burning, or throbbing, whatever the nature of the pain is, or sensation in the body, or tingling, just to know it, know that it's here, notice its existence, its journey, its arising and its passing away. And when there is nothing else that's predominant in the awareness, allowing the attention to come back to the movement of breath.
so I wanted to read you a poem um, to start our discussion. It's by uh, Wendell Berry, and I actually don't know what the name, but if there's a title to it. He says, as soon as I felt a necessity to learn about the non-human world, I wished to learn about it in a hurry. And then I began to learn perhaps the most important lesson that nature had to teach me, that I could not learn about her in a hurry. The most important learning, that of experience, can be neither summoned nor sought out. The most worthy knowledge cannot be acquired by what is known as study, though that is necessary and has its uses. It comes in its own good time and in its own way to the person who will go where it lives and wait and be ready. What is to be known is always here when it reveals itself to you, or when you come upon it, it is by chance. The only condition is your being there and being watchful. I like that poem because it reminds us that our practice is a practice of, um, of patience and a practice of determination, that a practice of presence uh, is one of faith, that we know uh, that what we need to learn, what is here for us to learn, what is here for us to know, is already here, and that there's no amount of grasping or pushing or um, trying to make things happen that will hurry up the, uh, the process, that our process is, um, is constantly here, here, and this ability that we train the mind with, that we've been doing uh, this evening with sitting meditation, walking meditation, standing meditation, is a way of training the mind to be here and to, um, to be watchful, to be aware of what is happening with some deep interest in energy. There's a wonderful teaching um, of the Buddha called uh, the Ten Paramis that really sets out the qualities of mind and heart that are necessary in this kind of practice that requires um, a, a, an understanding of the unfolding of our process. And it's the cultivation of certain qualities of the heart that start with generosity that Dalila was talking about. And generosity in a way opens us, um, opens the heart to receive the teachings, to receive, and the teachings are not just the teachings, the Dharma with a capital D, the, teach, the beautiful teachings that the Buddha gave 2,500 years ago that have been passed down to us, but also what needs, what is being taught in every moment with Dharma, Dharma small d, which is all phenomena, the truth of what's here with us. And so this, the generous heart kind of, not kind of, but it actually does open um, our awareness to what is here and allows us to receive it. If our hearts are closed and stingy and wanting to hold on to what it has, 
then there is no room for anything to fall in. So we open our hearts in generosity. And then we practice uh, the second of the paramis is um, uh, sila, what we call integrity or morality. We, we practice a way of life that doesn't harm anyone, that harms, that is non-harming to everything, and not only to other beings, other, other persons, but all other beings and to the earth itself. And we practice that through um, right speech, of telling the truth, uh, telling, um, not lying, not, um, not using harsh words, not, not using gossip or, or denigrating people, uh, whether present or not present, of um, using our sexuality in a, in, a, um, in a way of integrity, in a, in a way that is um, not harming to our partners, that's not harming to other, to other people. Um, we don't take what's not offered. We, uh, we are uh, impeccable with the gifts of the earth, um, and we, we try not to follow the, um, the greedy desires of the heart, but to take only what is needed uh, in, in integrity. And we um, look at our use of intoxicants or a way of um, intoxicating the mind because we know that that leads to heedlessness. So we are careful about how we use all of the, how we use food, how we use drink, how we use um, medicines, how we use um, uh, anything that might, might intoxicate the mind and make it heedless. And that's not to say that we don't take the medications that we need. And there's renunciation of the habits of mind that have brought us harm in the past, and beginning to understand what those habits of mind are, and begin to, to come to some discipline that um, renounces that which is harmful. And we use energy and wisdom, as much wisdom as we can garner from our daily lives, from just living a, lot, a human life. We know that we've had lots of challenges, and it's not so much that we wish that life would not have any challenges, but that we understand that living through the challenges and living through them in a way that has some integrity and, um, and, and uh, life and vitality uh, brings wisdom. And so we pay attention to what needs to be learned. And uh, this, the, the, this, the sixth parable is uh, truthfulness, that we really begin to see the truth of what is here, that we understand deeply um, what is true. And so the, 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 um, the discipline of the mind that allows us to see clearly in every moment begins to teach us what is true. And we live in alignment with that truth. And the seventh is patience, that we learn the patience that Wendell Berry is talking about. That 
what needs to unfold will unfold, and our pulling the petals of a rose will not allow, will not make that rose open any faster, as a matter of fact, we kill it. And so in the same way, we begin to train ourselves in the way of patience, so that we see what needs to be done in this moment. But we are uh, training the mind, cultivating the mind that understands the unfolding of life, the natural unfolding of life, and we endeavor to live in alignment with that. And the eighth is determination, that there is, uh, that we inform our practice with determination, which includes consistency and constancy. And the ninth is metta, or loving kindness, that uh, whatever we do, we do it in love. Whether we, whether we meet experience in that way or we meet other beings in that way, we are constantly training the heart to, um, to receive experience, to receive uh, all that happens in our lives with some gentleness and some kindness. Metta, the word metta um, means loving friendliness or loving kindness, a kind of goodwill towards uh, experience and towards other beings. And the tenth is equanimity, which is, a, which is a kind of balance of heart and mind, where we understand again that life has vicissitudes, that uh, there's a beautiful teaching of the Buddhas in which he talks about what he calls the eight worldly winds, which are uh, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, um, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. But these eight worldly winds are constantly blowing through our lives. And uh, that we can meet these, these vicissitudes with a, with a kind of wide-angled lens where we're looking over the, the, the Pali word upeka, which is translated as equanimity, has the root of looking over. So we're looking over our life in such a way that we have a broad perspective. And we see uh, the unfolding of life as uh, not in, in, in narrow, self-centered ways, but understanding the interconnectedness of life and understanding uh, how causes and conditions are what come together to create this moment. So we are aware of our the causes and the conditions that we create and how they result in the effects that, that come naturally from causes and conditions that are there. So if we have a, um, for instance, if we have uh, a certain temperature and a certain barometric pressure and a certain humidity, that will come together to make a snowstorm or rain or an ice storm. If any of those elements are missing, the snowstorm won't happen. And in the same way, we see our lives as that, that causes and conditions are constantly coming together and falling apart, coming together and falling apart. And our, our, our participation in that is being constantly aware of the uh, causes and conditions that we are creating. And when we understand that, instead of blaming and shaming and thinking that what's happening is uh, shouldn't be happening, we get a sense of equanimity, a sense of balance, a sense of understanding of the way uh, things are. 
So these ten qualities are constantly being cultivated just in every moment that we sit in meditation. And it may seem like a really simple thing, just watching the breath, or that what we're getting is a little bit of calm, which is certainly happening. There's, there's a certain kind of calm and uh, concentration and tranquility that's quite pleasant that comes from sitting in meditation. And yet something even deeper is also happening. That these qualities, as we pay attention in this moment, all of these qualities are being cultivated. And so pay attention to that. Pay attention to the deeper meaning of your meditation practice, that if you are faithful and you're consistent and you're constant with your practice, that these qualities, in some ways, begin. it seems as if they magically start to appear in your life stream, but actually it's because of the discipline and the work that you do in um, having some uh, uh, wish to, to participate in this amazing practice that has been around for, for thousands of years and has been transforming lives uh, for, that, and for, those, uh, for those eons. So you, are, you have entered a stream, in a way, of, um, of that whole uh, history of being sitting down and uh, practicing this beautiful sense of presence and being here and paying attention. So I honor you for that and I'm really happy that you're here tonight. So I'm really happy to take questions or comments um, or suggestions about what you might like to talk about tonight. Now that you've gone to the other side of the room. Could you wait for the mic? Are we recording, Dalila? Just so that you know you're being recorded. And if you don't wish to be, please let us know. Um, hello. Thank you so much. I was listening to the CD on... Could you tell me your name? Sandra Stein. Sandra? Sandra. Yes. I was listening to the CD on mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn. And... He talks at the end about the difference between mindfulness and awareness, but I found it so difficult to understand. And anything you could say about it, I appreciate. So tell me, um, so did everybody understand what she was saying? Because I think the mic is a little bit um, muffled. Did everybody understand what she was saying? Did anybody not understand? Did you put your hand up if you didn't? Okay. So you're asking, Sandra's asking about the, the difference between mindfulness and awareness as John Kabat-Zinn was explaining it. So do you remember what he said? He said that mindfulness is that um, I'm aware this is, this is white and this is blue, and, um, but awareness is larger. It, awareness is, it's difficult for me. That's mm -hmm. why I'm asking that mm -hmm. perhaps. So it's, tell me... Um, that awareness is larger than just the color. It's a sense of your entire being in some way. Yeah. Without A higher thinking. being? 
not a higher, but a fuller, a, a fuller sense of yourself. A fuller um, sense of yourself. But uh, and then he said, enough of that now. But <laughs> sorry, I'm not. Then he said, enough of that now. But uh, I didn't. It seemed like a wonderful concept, but I didn't really understand. Okay, so um, can we just do a little bit of investigation about this question? Okay. Is that okay? Yes. So tell me what difference it would make to your practice if you understood that. Well, it seems like I would have a larger sense of peace and awareness. Why is that? Um, and, and, and if you it's have a, a larger question. sense of awareness, then there's something that you understand about it. So okay. tell me what it is you understand about awareness. That um, it's more than just paying attention to mm-hmm. red or blue or uh, rainy. Um, it's Could you move the microphone just a little is bit? This yeah. better? Yeah, that is. Thanks. Um, just a, a larger sense of of your own wholeness uh, that combines feeling and thinking. Mm-hmm. But. It's very hard. It's easy to say the words, but uh-huh. hard to really grasp being there. Beautiful. So you, you have, you really. You, there's something that you do understand. I hope you understand that. I understand in my mind. But <laughs> okay. Good. Uh, getting out of my mind and really experiencing it. Yeah, is we're all out of our minds, right? <laughs> so, so there's something that you understand about awareness and the, the, the larger presence of awareness. And there's also something that you understand about mindfulness. What is it? I'm sorry, I couldn't. What is it you understand about mindfulness? I understand mindfulness is to be aware of the present. Mm-hmm. So, so, so there's something that you do know about the two concepts. So that mindfulness is paying attention in this moment to what is here, right? And the awareness results from that mindfulness. Yeah? Is that, how does that work for you? I'll think about it, thank you. So, so then tell me how you will um, use that in your practice. I'll try to be more aware and mindful of really how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So, so you're paying attention in the moment you're knowing what's happening in the moment, and that presi- and that um, that results in a in a kind of larger awareness of where you are, the context of where you are, what's around you, what is happening internally, what is happening externally. Yes. Yeah, I think I think so, you're saying that it's 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 like hearing music that really moves you that. You're aware, but you're aware in a much fuller sense. Mm-hmm. Your emotions and your uh, thinking are combined. Beautiful. So there's so much you already need. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Michelle? <laughs> So just one more thing I want to say to Sandra before before you, you ask your question. Um, 
So what's really important is that you recognize that you have an inner teacher, right? And um, to develop some faith and confidence in that inner teacher that knows. So when we're practicing, what we're seeing is that it's the one who knows. And it's not the, it's not the, the eye of personality so much as that there is a deep knowing. And the practice is beginning to, um, it's almost like we're doing a, 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 a dig, an archeological dig to find that deep one who knows. And each time we sit down, each time we look at what's happening, what's here now, we're learning something. We're learning something on a deeper level. And so, so what, what is really helpful is to look at your inner teacher and see if you can develop a sense of confidence about that inner teacher because you already knew, really, um, what was true about the, the distinction between those two and how it might be helpful in your practice. You're welcome. My name's Rich, and perhaps you're answering my question to a degree. It's about meditative walking, and I understand. Can you hear in the back? My name's Rich, and perhaps you're answering the question. You're answering my question. It's specifically about meditative walking, and I understand how to do it mechanically. My question as I've done it here is what's the practicality or the applicability of it in life as you go through life? I understand when I do my practice alone and meditate. So I guess what I'm getting from you is that's just another type of place where you have your awareness. And, but we do it the way you were describing it to people here was so measured and slowly. That's not how you would do it normally walking the streets of New York or walking your home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to get a mm -hmm. handle on, I understand, even getting up out of the chair can be a meditative mm -hmm. rising. Mm -hmm. but is that it? <laughs> Thank you for the question. It's a good question. Um, so there are, there are a couple of things about that, and maybe we'll do a little bit of inquiry about it. Um, so the, the first thing is that to teach walking meditation, it has to be broken down, right? So that's why it becomes very slow and very measured. And there is a way of, of doing walking meditation as a slow and measured practice. And it's helpful. It's helpful because we live in a really fast-moving society and culture, and, and we're, you know, we, we're, we're exporting that all over the world, and the, the whole world is speeding up, and just you know, all of the emails that we have to answer, the text messages, and the cell phones, and the, you know, there's another Wendell Berry poem which he says, which is about how to be a poet, and he says, stay away from school use, right? <laughs> is one of the pieces of advice he gives. And you know we are we are enmeshed in screens. I I, I watched someone um, uh, driving down the highway today as we were coming here, and she had her headphones on. She had a GPS on her thing, and she was talking. And she was 
she was doing something else. I don't know what it was. And I thought, oh my God, you know, she can't possibly be present for all of that because it, you know it's, it's just hard to be so plugged in to all of the input from the world all the time. So, so the idea of slowing down is not a bad one. Right? And what I'd say is that it's possible as you go through your life that um, you, can, you can use the practice of walking meditation to remember to slow down. So the word for mindfulness in Pali is sati, which means remembering, right? And there's a famous quote of a Zen master who said, it's not difficult to be mindful, it's difficult to remember to be mindful, right? So, so the remembering is a beautiful practice. So when you're in your life, where do you work? Do you work at home? Do you work in an office? Do you work outside? Where do you work? I don't work. You don't work. So what do you, where are you usually in the daytime? Um, walking, exercising, museums, lectures, reading. Sounds like a good life. <laughs> it is. I paid my so, dues for it. So as you, I'm sure you did. So as, we, as you go through life, so as you're walking from the gym to the museum, right? There's, there's a whole interval in there. And, and usually what we're doing is, when we're at the gym, we're thinking about what exhibits we're going to see at the museum, right? And then when we're at the museum, we're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. So our practice can begin to remind us to be here instead. So that when we're walking from the museum, from the gym to the museum, instead of thinking about what exhibits we're going to see at the museum, we can start to look at what it feels like to be right here in our bodies right now on, you know, 52nd Street and Fifth Avenue, uh, with our feet on the cement, and our our bodies in the, you know, in the mist or the rain or the sun or whatever is happening, and paying attention in the moment to be in here. And that's going to naturally slow us down. It just, the, we don't have to slow ourselves down. And of course, we don't have to walk like a zombie through New York City either, right? We can walk at a normal pace, but it will be slower. And instead of um, spending our lives anticipating what's going to happen next, we can actually live our lives just as they are right now. So that the walking meditation becomes a really integral part of our practice. Um, because walking meditation, as I said when I was um, teaching it to a few people, is, uh, is a way of balancing our energy. And a lot of people treat it as a kind of secondary way of practice, but it's a very important and integral piece of our practice. Because it's, as I said, the bridge into interactivity. I've had the pleasure, um, the excruciating pleasure, of having a, a, a Burmese Sayadaw in Burma teach walking meditation. And he gave a talk for three hours on walking meditation. That's how much is in it. Right? And it was a beautiful talk and a really helpful talk. And, and essentially, he talked about how you can see every element, uh, earth, air, fire, and water, with each step. So there's the, there's the solidity of the earth. There's the lightness of the, of, of the foot as it, as it moves through the air, which is 
air element. Uh, there's the fluidity of the, of, the, of the body that teaches us about water, etc. And, and the temperature that it's hitting the face or the skin or the temperature of the body or the temperature of the earth teaches us fire. So we can be completely integrated into the life, into the natural life of the earth as we are walking, even if we're walking on cement. Right? If we pay attention, we can begin to really see how life is, what, what, what goes into this very complex thing that we call me, what goes into this very complex thing that we call life, all of the elements of it, so that we begin to understand it, not in a superficial way, but we begin to drop into life in a deep way because we understand it, not because we've read about it in books, or because we've read a poem, or we've thought about it, but because we literally experience it as we are experiencing it, and we experience it deeply. So walking meditation balances the energy of our sitting meditation, so we don't fall asleep when we're sitting, but it's also, in its own right, a beautiful practice that can teach us a lot. I, that makes sense to me. In fact, what came to my mind is when you do your sitting meditation, you're usually in your own isolation, in, in a private space. What you've described to me is you take that meditation idea and it's in your awake life right. as you walk. In, even I, what came to my mind is even talking, talking with consciousness, talking in a way of thoughtfulness. So I have it. I understand I think, what you're saying. It just transcends your whole life. Yeah, and, we're, and then we're beginning to see that everything, everything, everything that we do, if we, if we train ourselves well, every activity can be infused with presence. Every activity can be infused with mindfulness. Every activity can be infused with wisdom and clarity if we pay attention. And so the walking meditation, the sitting meditation, the standing meditation, all of those are, are about the cultivation of the, uh, of the clear mind and the open and compassionate heart. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So could you wait for the mic? Hi there. Thanks for your uh, your talk. When you were talking about kindness, your name? oh, my name's Charles. Charles. Hi. Um, when you were talking about kindness and love, um, what do you mean by kindness? Um, what do you think I mean? I don't know. That's why I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Well, I bet you have some idea of it. I actually, um, I love the Socratic method. Um, I've actually done a, I've, I've actually done like a two-year study of the word kindness and, the, and as part of my practice, and I, I, I have a little skit that I do. I call it kindness is the the word like the word luxury in the New York State real estate section. You can have a place where the floors go this way, the bathrooms leaking, and they call it luxury. As long as it's in Manhattan, it's luxury. And um, I think the notion of kindness is one in here in the United States in Buddhist 
uh, communities that's really um, should be abolished. Okay, so could you tell me why? Um, wow. So, if I'm being kind, then I'm being loving in one sense, but it could be, um, it could just be a posture. It could be the way I articulate. Some people think it's if I say something in a certain way, then those words become sort of like the roadmap to engage someone where they are. Now, that might be real, really, really good, but it's really not generous if I see that person going off a cliff because I don't want to get involved. But I said the right things. Um, I think that the word kindness, if we do an act of kindness, it can um, actually, um, the attachments that I have to my, to my act of kindness might be, again, a form of narcissism that, again, really is not engaged to the person I'm speaking to. For example, let's say I go visit someone who's dying in the hospital and I give them the power of now. Now, I might think that that's like kind and generous, but here's someone that's really in the power of now. They don't need to be preached at. Now, and so th there's a whole bunch of analogies that, you know, I could, you know, but I just wanted to know. Um, so I, 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 the, and, and the other part, which gets a little, it's sort of like the opposite of what people think is kindness. Sometimes um, telling someone very, very directly is actually very, very kind in the sense of loving kindness. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I just see it as a barrier that people use too often. Mm. So I'm glad I asked you because I can see what your concern is. And it's not an illegitimate concern. But I think what you're not really talking about kindness. Because kindness is of body, speech, and mind and heart. So, so it's an integrated kindness that understands what's appropriate. So loving kindness, metta, is one of four Brahma Viharas, one of four divine abodes that the Buddha taught um, as a way to live now in, um, in a kind of divinity. And they're not, on, they're not divorced from each other. So loving kindness, when it meets joy, is joyful. When it meets suffering, is compassionate. And when it meets the vicissitudes of, of life, is equanimous. So, so loving kindness has all of these emanations. So it emanates these three qualities. It's also infused with these three qualities, and it's informed by these three qualities. So, we're, we're, so when we say kindness or loving friendliness or however you want to interpret it, it's not a superficial thing where we put on a happy face and say, oh, isn't this all wonderful? Because we understand deeply with our practice of equanimity that life is difficult and complex that there are no simple, we don't meet um, some, someone suffering with an emoticon, you know, that just has a happy face. Because that's not, that, that's not meeting um, in an appropriate way. 
So loving kindness has all of these qualities so that we can respond in life in a very deeply appropriate way. So you're absolutely right. If someone is dying, we don't give them the power of now because we think we have some, we're, we have some superior practice that they can benefit from. But actually what they may benefit by is our simple presence. Our simple presence where we're practicing the power of now to their benefit because sometimes that may all be what's that may be all that's needed. Or perhaps um, your your kind ear is necessary or needed because that person needs to speak. Or perhaps it's just your open heart because what they would most appreciate is silence and a silent presence. So we're not, when we talk about metta or kindness or loving friendliness or goodwill, it's a very deep goodwill that needs all experience in an extremely appropriate way. Because that's what's kind, is that we're appropriate. We know what, what the response is that's needed. And how do we know that? We know that because there's wisdom in kindness. There's a wisdom that sees clearly what's needed and doesn't have to um, boast or show itself as kindness or um, uh, lord over or, um, or think about or, or check with the books to find out what needs to be done, but is an immediate, appropriate, heartful, and wise response. So, you know, in, in our practice, we talk about wisdom and compassion as the two wings of a bird. Without either, the bird doesn't fly. So our, our kindness practice incorporates both of those, as well as these three other qualities. Does that help? No, you and I are completely on the same page. I, uh, I think, but what, what all I was Is saying... Is that a good thing? Um, it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing actually when people are in a sangha and perhaps that's why I asked the question because I do think that people who who read a, this everyone's you know look at the self help section right it's like three walls it, the self help book section it's like three walls now in Barnes and Noble right so everyone's out there reading this stuff and I just think that sometimes the simple distilled message of what it is and what it isn't it's not posture. It's movement forward with the moment. If that person is there, that's what it is. And I, and I, you know, I agree with you completely. I, I allowed myself to be your Socratic counterpart to engage, you know, a discussion on it. I, I'm happy I did because it, it was like poetry. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. Right. Thanks, Charles. Hi. Hi. Um, my name is Rita, and um, I guess it goes a little bit um, in the continuation of the conversation and um, bringing kindness, acceptance, equanimity in your interactions with people. Um, and how does it work? And I, it's hard in, in daily life to bring these sort of teachings when uh, it comes to your own needs and you're not absolutely detached. 
you're not absolutely detached because um, you are not from uh, from many things um, in life or when in your relationships with people. Um, yeah, how do you really balance um, needs and attachments with a sense of kindness and some detachment that mm -hmm. we are supposed to get from practice? So there are a couple of things that I want to just talk to you about. So the first thing is just to say that uh, when the Buddha talked about kindness, uh, the first thing that he advised was that you look to see how if you looked everywhere in the world and tried to find someone who is more deserving of your love than you, you wouldn't find that person. Right? So our, our practice of kindness, our practice of metta, always starts with ourselves. Now it's a bit tricky, right? Because we can fall into a kind of self-centeredness and selfishness and become incredibly narcissistic because we're so paying attention to our own needs that we forget that, we, that there's a context and that we are in the midst of, um, you know, that we're connected to in a deep way. Martin Luther King talked about this in, um, in, in a, a speech that he gave at the University of Michigan where he said, we are uh, uh, interconnect we're inextricably interconnected that we are um, tied in a single garment of destiny and that I can't be what I can what I need to be or um, capable of being until you are what you are what you need to be and what you are capable of doing so uh, it's a beautiful way of talking about this interconnected uh, nature of reality, which is, you know, another aspect of what I was talking about with causes and conditions. That we are so tied together that we will all perish together or we will survive together. And so can we, even though we are paying attention to our needs, which of course we need to do. Also understand that we are doing so in the context of a much larger net from which it is impossible for us to fall. That we are in a net where we are tied together in a single garment of destiny. And we see it just, just with the, the disfoliation of the environment and the matricide of the earth. That we will we will all perish together if we don't understand what we need to do to support each other and to support the earth. So that's the first piece. The second piece is when you talked about attachment and detachment. And just as Charles was referring to before, you know, there's a very big danger when we hear these teachings that we idealize them and that we think that, you know, if we don't become this incredibly liberated, loving, wise, compassionate, equanimous, detached being that, you know, we're just, we're just bums, right? And that we just don't understand anything and, you know, that, that, that somehow there is a destination somewhere in the glorious future 
where we will become these enormous beings who are peaceful, kind, compassionate, eternal, you know, whatever the adjectives you want to use. And then what happens is we slip out of the present moment with that. And what can you do right now in this moment? How can you be here, right in this moment, with as much compassion and as much kindness and as much wisdom as is possible, given your circumstances? And it's a practice. So we're going to fall. We're going to default. We're going to be unsuccessful. We're going to be attached. We're going to... You know, find ourselves in greed, hatred, and delusion over and over and over and over and over again. And we can either continue to do that, or little by little, we can see greed as it arises in our, um, in our heart and minds. And we can decide, we can renounce it, we can decide not to act on it right now. But we can do that without condemning ourselves for greed arising. And we can see hatred in our, in our mind streams and decline to act with revenge or decline to act with cruelty or decline to act in a way that is, that is harmful out of our aversion or, or our hatred. And it's a practice. And we can vow to wake up from our ignorance. And it's a practice. So we'll, we'll be ignorant and then we'll be clear, and then we'll be ignorant, and then we'll be clear, and we'll see it happening, back and forth and back and forth. But what begins to happen when we have that determination that I was talking about with the paramis, and we keep working at it, what we begin to see is that the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in our hearts begin to weaken. And they weaken, they do weaken. And I'm, I'm sure that if I ask people here who have been practicing for a while, they'll say, yeah, it's lessened. Has it gone away completely? Maybe not, but it's lessened. Now, isn't it better if we're living in a world where we're all working to not act on our grief, to not act on our hatred, to not act in delusion or ignorance, but to see it, see it arising, we say, not now. Right? I love that story of Aristotle. Uh, he loved to take his students out to the marketplace. And he would go out to the marketplace and he would never buy anything. And they finally said to him, Master, why is it you just love to go out into the marketplace? You love it when we go, you just love it. And you never buy anything. What's up with that? And he said, I love to go out and see what I don't need. <laughs> right? So you can see the greed arising, but you don't have to act on it. And you, don't, you also don't have to condemn yourself because you feel you, there's still some attachment to this or that or the other. But you don't have to work, you don't have to act on it. You can see it, recognize it, allow it, investigate it, but you don't, it doesn't have to be you. Right? Just because anger arises in your mind stream doesn't mean you're an angry person. It just means that all the causes and conditions for anger came into being. They arose, you can watch it 
be there, the heat in the body, the throbbing of the head, the pulsing of the belly, the twisting, whatever else, whatever, however anger manifests for you, and not act on it. Or if you act on it, as the Buddha said to his seven-year-old son, Rahula, look to see before you do an act. And then if you still continue to do the act, be aware when you are doing the act. And after you've done the act, be aware of the consequences of the act. Right? So you're constantly, so your practice of mindfulness is, is, is a constant companion. It's, you're never without it. And it means that you will trip and fall because you're a human being. And you can allow yourself with kindness and compassion to be exactly that. We have time for one more question. Michelle. Hello. Uh, my name is Carlos. And um, I'm kind of a control freak. So I'm sorry? I'm a control freak. You're a control freak. Yes. So. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> so, New Yorkers, busy schedule difficult to commit to meditating on a regular basis and trying to maximize the time you have when you do meditate. So there's a theory that says listen to the pain as it arises, let it let it come and don't 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 get attached to it. So we can do this for a long time. And there's another theory that says, let's brainwash the mind so that in the moment you're focusing on what you would like to experience ideally. What you'd like to experience ideally? Ideally. So I put together these tapes that are kind of like affirmations that I listen to while I'm meditating. And... A part of me feels that I'm cheating, in a way, because I'm not listening to the, the, the part of my mind that might have a negative thought, and I'm conditioning my mind to hear the positive thoughts that I'm listening to while I'm meditating. So what's your take on, on that whole theory? Whether I should be sitting without the... Me- the, the 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 conditioning that I want to have in my mind, or what am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> you're the control freak, so you tell me what I'm going to say. You're going to say, listen to the madness in your mind and let it arise, and eventually you'll get over it. <laughs> so how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, we'll, we'll see how are you tomorrow. How you doing with the tapes? Huh? How are you doing with the tapes? How are they doing? Well, you know, my mind still goes in there and, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> find this way in somehow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that works, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, um, 
if you want to listen to affirmations, there's nothing wrong with that. Right? And they may be helpful. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a total fan of anything that's helpful. Um, and when you're doing this practice, it's really it's it's a really powerful practice. It's a really powerful practice, and because it's powerful, there's a lot of purification in it, right? So there's purification and there's purity, and we're all like really you know mad for purity, and we hate purification. But how are we going to get there without purification, right? So. So the practice, it's beautifully designed to help us to go through the purification that we need. Now, I don't want to, you know, I don't want you all to now say, you know, now get this idealized idea about becoming pure, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the pra- you can have faith in the practice that if you are able to be with what's difficult, you begin to see its nature. So just as we were saying before that, um, you know, when we broke down the walking meditation, it seemed as if, you know, it all went really slowly and it went through like, you know. And there's a reason for that. Because we are not, when when we're speeding, or when we're trying to get somewhere else that we're not, we're not seeing clearly where we are because we're involved in what is going to happen as opposed to what's here. So this powerful practice gives us the ability, the mind actually, um, the neuroscientists are telling us now that each time we do something, the, the, the brain, the physical brain, creates new neural pathways. When we change a habit, you know, even if it's at first, even if at first it feels artificial, it feels like we're making us, ourselves do something rather than it arising naturally, neural, new neural pathways get worn into the brain. If you're, if you're simply listening to affirmations, and not seeing what's really underneath what's going on in your mind, in your heart, in your body, the the neural pathways aren't really being worn in in the same deep way. So, yeah, if you want to listen to affirmations, go right ahead. It's not a problem. However, if you want to do a meditation practice, do it fully. Because unless you do it fully, you will not see the benefits of it. Right? If you kind of do it halfway, you know, the, 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 the ability to, to be still with what's difficult is an incredibly empowering ability. Right? Because, as the Tibetans say, we're always practicing for our death. What's going to happen when you're on your deathbed in a lot of pain, even if you've got morphine and discomfort? You're going to die a really miserable death if you can't work with it. And people who are who've worked in hospice tell me about people who can't work with difficulty 
and their deaths are excruciating. It's difficult. So what you're learning, and, it, and it's not just looking towards your death, but also each time we die in this life, right? Because we're always dying to something. Our experience is always leading us to death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth, death and rebirth. And it's, it's different, and that's purification. And how will we work with the purification? How will we receive the fruits of the benefit of the purification if we're not going through it? So when we go through what's difficult, we learn a tremendous amount in our lives. And also, if we're able to work with it in a different way, where you know, we have the added benefit of, of new neural pathways being worn into the, into the brain. And the Buddha said it 2,500 years ago. He said, wherever we put the mind, that, that's where it will incline. Of course, now that the neuroscientists are saying it, we believe it, right? <laughs> we didn't believe it before. And that's okay, right? But now it's confirmed. Where we put the mind, that's where it will incline. But you're not going to be able to work skillfully with that without seeing the nature of the mind now, right? So all of the you know, negative thoughts and all of that, can you actually be in meditation with it so that you can see that the nature of a negative thought is the same as the nature of a positive thought. It's exactly the same. It's a thought. But we pay attention to the content and we confuse our minds in thinking that the content is the process of the thought. So if we understand thinking in a visceral, direct, experiential way, we begin to understand how the mind can change, how it can produce the thoughts that it produces. And so we are now working on our own steam to, um, to transform, rather than having something from the outside which may be you know, good in the moment, but will be not strong enough to overcome the deep habits of mind that we've established throughout our lifetime. And that's what meditation is working on. So, do both. Thank you. You're welcome, Carlos. So, thank you for your beautiful questions. We've come to the end of the evening. I'm sorry, I've, I've kept you a few minutes. Over. So just sit for a moment and come back to the present moment and let all the words fall away. The, it's an amazing thing about words, our visceral experience is what teaches us. So as we're hearing the words, there's a visceral experience that's also happening and that's the inner teacher. So allow the words to fall away and simply know what your experience is in this moment. And if you feel that there has been some benefit and some fruit from your practice, from hearing the Dharma, from our reflections together, would you join me in sharing the merit and the blessings of that experience? with all beings everywhere without exception.
So we allow all of the fruits and benefit that we've received to be shared with all of our fellow beings, wishing for their happiness, their peace, their safety, their awakening, and their complete liberation. And of course, we are all included in that because we are inextricably woven and tied together. And so when we wish for the happiness of all beings, we include ourselves. May it be so.